I'm Andre Longley, and my guest this week on the Ham and Hyde podcast is Laura Marks OBE. Laura is the founder of Mitzvah Day, an annual day of community action, and she is chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust. She is also co-founder of Nisa Nashim, a Jewish and Muslim women's network, and she is on the Mayor of London's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Group. We spoke on November 23rd, while lockdown Mark II was still in place, and negotiations were ongoing around a future trade agreement between Britain and the EU. Laura Marks, thank you very much for joining us on the Ham and High podcast this week. Absolutely, my pleasure. It's fairly difficult to know where to start because you've got so many hats and um, you've been involved in so many things over the last couple of decades. Um, Yeah, Wikipedia describes you as interfaith social activist, policy advisor, writer and media commentator. Does that sum it up, do you think? I guess so, yes. But if you ask me to sum it up myself, I would say that I do things that bring people together uh, to make the place better. So the thing I think that I do, my focus tends to be on people and bringing them together. Because I think that what, I'm not saying it's the only thing that needs to be done, but where I seem to have found my my niche, if you like, is in recognizing that so many of the world's problems are because people are living in their own worlds. They don't have the opportunities or the confidence or the ways to meet each other. And therefore they don't hear each other's stories. And because they don't hear each other's stories, they live with their own stereotypes, prejudice, if you like. And so I think that the thing that pulls together almost everything I do is is togetherness and in fact I've just launched my own website called the common good because it's all about bringing people together for the common good and so whilst some of it is about um, grassroots things like mitzvah day or nisan Hashim, and some of it's um, about um, well genocide and hatred which is holocaust memorial day and some of it is dealing with normal people and some of it's dealing with government or influencers. It's all really around the same stuff, which is recognizing that people need to come together. And at a sort of governmental level, if you like, it's the same thing. It's about integration. It's about how do you develop policies and an outlook which recognizes that until people come together and find their similarities, we're going to be, at the moment, more and more polarized. And if you look at what's going on in the world and you look at what's going on in the American election or you look at what went on with Brexit or you look at at anti-vax or all of these things, people are just polarized into crazy different stances and almost nobody looking for a middle ground. And I think that's very depressing. And and, uh, I think that that's the area that I really focus on. Do you think at a local level there's going to be a lasting change after this year where mutual aid groups have sprung up alongside lots of other different kinds of community groups? Or do you think that will come and go as a reaction without any lasting change? Well, I think it's a really a really interesting question. And funnily enough, I was on a podcast thing last week with some young people uh, who were interviewing me and they asked me that question you know is this a is this going to stay or is this a a a short-term blip and I said well there's an optimistic and a pessimistic answer to this one (laughs) 
you know, optimistic is, you know, everything's changed and now we're all friends and we've got, like I've got a WhatsApp on my street now, which we didn't have before. And I've lived here for nearly 30 years. We didn't have a WhatsApp on the street. Now we've got a WhatsApp and there's, you know, there's all these united Facebook groups and all this stuff going on and we're all jolly, jolly. And, you know, I think some of it's true and some of it will stay. And, you know, the pessimistic side of it is, you know, the, the growth of the far right and the growth of radicalization and um, and people being intolerant and lockdown making it harder for people to meet each other. So I think there's going to be both. And all I can do uh, is to try to encourage the positives and to try to hope and and develop ways of working, ways of thinking and structures which allow people to come together. And is, is that partly what The Common Good's about? It's trying to provide a platform for that and for, for communities going forward. Yeah. I mean, if we go back to Mitzvah Day, for example, Mitzvah Day is a structure. That's fundamentally what it is. It's a structure to allow people to come together. And the reason it works, I believe, is because people want to do good. Like most people are good people, you know, they're normal people, they lead normal lives. And if you ask them, of course, what they want to do is they want to make the world a better place, but they don't know how. And they know how maybe within their own family, maybe, but they don't know how to do it in wider society. And what Mitzvah Day does very simply is give people a structure. So it says on Mitzvah Day or this this year in a month of mitzvahs. I don't know whether we'll continue it or not, it's too early to tell. But this year, here's a simple structure whereby you can go out and do some good. So you can say, it's mitzvah day today, let's all go and help at the local library. Or this year, in fact, where it's all been really about food poverty and loneliness, which are the two really big issues of today. Um, let's all go out together and get food for the food bank, even if we can't come together to do it this year. Here's a structure. We'll show you where the food banks, we'll tell you what sort of food they want, we'll tell you when they're open, we'll set up halfway houses in synagogues or churches or whatever, because they're often not open on Sundays, or we'll expend the month so that you can do it or whatever you want. Um, we'll give you a structure. And also, really importantly, we give people a structure for interfaith work. So loads of people say to me, oh, I'd really like to do something into faith. And yes, of course, people would, because people are good people. But how do you do that? You know, do you bang on the church door and say, hello, can someone come and talk to me? Or do you go and knock on the door of the mosque or the temple? Or you really haven't got a clue how to go about it. It's, it's the imam home. You know, people, that, that just sounds way too intimidating. Same at the synagogue. What are you going to do? Knock on the door? So what Mitzvah Day does is it actually gives you a way to knock on the door. Hello, it's Mitzvah Day next Tuesday, ne next, well, next Sunday, because it was on a Sunday, um, or a month of mitzvahs. And would you like to come and do something with us? We're going to collect food for the local homeless um, the local food bank. Uh, it's at this church. It's at this date. We're going to be there from two to three. Why don't you come and join us? Simple, easy structure. And it's also a structure that you can scale up. So we started small. We started in Belsize Park. And we had in 2005, we had 100 people at what was then the Britannia Hotel on the corner of... Um, uh, England's Lane. 
Mm-hmm. And you had, we developed a structure and then you could see, okay, well, this synagogue could do it and this church could do it and you can have them all over the country. And so now, 12, 14 years on, oh, so we became a charity in 2008. And 12 years on from that, we've got mitzvah days running the same weekend in 30 countries and all over the UK. So basically every mainstream Jewish community will be running a mitzvah day and most of them will be doing something with a local organization from a different faith group. And it's because it's simple and it's structured and it does something people want to do. That's remarkable. So how many events and groups in total did something last Sunday? Well, it's harder this year to tell than normal because mm-hmm. this year people will have been less likely to sign up. Um, they'll be much more likely to be doing something individually. So normally we measure the number of organizations that take part, uh, which is around the globe. Last year was about 700, of which about 400 were in Britain. This year, I think we had 300 UK sign up so far, around about that. We haven't got the final numbers confirmed, but around about that. And on average, each organization probably does about two events. So some are doing 10, like a big synagogue like South Hampstead will be doing a lot, um, but a little group of people will be doing one. So, you know, around 1,000, 1,200 events in the UK will be happening. Um, But it is hard to measure exactly. You mentioned before there's you know, other issues of, of concern, the, the rise of the far right you mentioned. Um, I suppose one of the ways of tackling that is, yes, of course, you need to argue down those kinds of views. But communities coming together and working together makes that kind of ideology uh, less likely to get its claws in anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. It, it, I think it does. One of the really worrying things about the far right is its dominance in the online world. And that's really difficult because they're not operating in, in, I mean, they obviously are operating in the real world as well, but so much of this is going on in the sort of dark side of the web and in the gaming world and in the whole sort of difficult to see world And so I think that what we need to do is to make people more resilient and to make people more likely when they hear far right or to that extent actually far left these days, but, you know, extreme ideology uh, to be more likely to say, well, that just doesn't make sense. And the area I really come across it now is in my work in, uh, you know, I chair the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust Mm -hmm. and the growth of Holocaust denial online is huge. And Britain actually isn't bad when you compare us to many other countries in the world. We're right at the sort of um, mild end of the spectrum. But nonetheless, the sort of thing we're talking about doesn't, it crosses national borders very easily there's no national borders online Mm. so where you've got people um with ideologies that basically just sort of say well you know we're not interested in the detail of that it just obviously didn't happen or it's obviously exaggerated or how could that possibly be or well they're just lying 
thing or, you know, all the, 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 the tropes that go on now are very different from in the past where people tried to disprove it. And that's very hard to counter. So you have to have people who are better educated, the better, you know, the better informed. If you don't know anything about the Holocaust or about other genocides, actually, because the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, we commemorate the Holocaust as we start with the Holocaust. But then we recognize that this stuff did happen again and again. People say never again. It did happen again. You know, it happened in Cambodia and Rwanda and Darfur and, um, and in Bosnia. And then look what's going on at the moment with the Uyghur Muslims and the Rohingya and all sorts of other groups as well. So you can't just say, well, it did happen then. It's not only did it happen then, it happened then and it happened again and it happened again and it happened again and it's still going on. And to ensure it doesn't happen again, people have got to be better educated and they've got to have the knowledge to know this stuff did happen and it's still happening. Do you think then that there should be a, a radical rethink of how um, public affairs or recent history is taught in, in schools? Or is this something wider that you're talking about? Well, the Holocaust is in the national curriculum. And uh, even though you sometimes get um, fake emails around going around saying it's been taken out, it hasn't. It, it is in the national curriculum. And therefore, arguably, young people probably know more about it than older people who were not talking about it at school. You know, it wasn't, wasn't talked about when I was at school. Uh, and one of the uh, things about the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust is that we work very hard with adults as well as children. Sometimes it's easier to access young people because you can get into schools. But we also very much access uh, adults through um, public institutions. And you'll find Holocaust Memorial Day events going on in town halls and in libraries and in um, all sorts of public institutions, as well as places like prisons and young people's offender groups, as well as places of worship. You know, this year we uh, were um, more successful getting into other faith institutions. Obviously, it's relatively easy to get into synagogues, but into other faith institutions mm. as well. And it's important to educate the adults because... Firstly, of course, the adults educate their own children. And if the adults don't believe the stuff, then it doesn't matter what the kids learn at school if the adults just say, well, that's rubbish. So the adults need to be educated and you know, informed. And again, if, if you believe, as I do, that most people are good, they're not deliberately uh, scoffing at or doubting stories of atrocities going on around the world. They're just not well enough informed. So I think that there's a, a piece for us all to play about ensuring that the messaging is, is very clear. And of course, one of the really challenging areas at the moment is the role of online media platforms in terms of allowing distortion to take place, not just about the Holocaust or genocide, but about everything. And uh, we were having a conversation, funnily enough, a, a group of, of Jewish um, a group of, of Jewish professionals, people working in the Jewish world recently about the role of the faith groups with uh, encouraging people to be vaccinated when the vaccin vaccination comes along. And, you know, is it the role of the faith groups to get involved in this? And we didn't have an easy answer to it, except that, to my mind, giving 
prominence to a view that says you shouldn't have vaccines because they're dangerous. Giving that equal prominence is nonsense. We've seen it, I don't want to name the obvious example where it happened, where a very, very major UK thing, the pros and the cons were both in the same weight in the media. Um, but it obviously, obviously need to vaccinate people. And I, I think that my view would be, therefore, that faith leaders who carry an enormous amount of weight can play a huge role in helping with this because people are, you know, people are dubious anyway. You know, people are dubious about vaccinations and people are um, also susceptible to messages that are radical, mm -hmm. telling us that we shouldn't be vaccinated for goodness knows what reason. And we do need to be vaccinated. At the moment, I think it's Islamophobia Awareness Month, isn't it? Speaking right. of, um, of of religious tolerance, your one of your other roles is you're on you're on the Mayor of London's Equalities, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Is that the right title? Yeah, there is there's an advisory board. Yes. Oh, advisory um, board. Yeah. And how does that work? What kind of role do you play there? Well, what that is, is I'll come back to uh, Islamophobia, if I may. Sure. Um, but that is a board set up a couple of years ago to try to ensure that everything that the um, mayor's office does, everything the GLA does, is done through a prism of inclusion. And so this advisory board was put together, which is actually chaired by um, the deputy mayor, Debbie Weeks-Bernard. And they bring us all sorts of things that are going on. I mean, at the moment, of course, it's the recovery plan, because that's the, the new thing, the recovery plan post-COVID, to look at it through a prism of equality inclusion to see whether you would do it differently. And on that board, there's probably... Mm, probably about 15 of us, I guess. I might have that wrong, about 15 of us, maybe 20. And each of the people there has got a more than one area which they would be specialists in. So, so I, for example, would be somebody who would have views particularly on faith and gender. And every so there's somebody who's... Um, Everybody there has, so there are people there with disabilities, there are people there concerned with aging, there are people there concerned with gender, um, but all of us have were specifically recruited to be multi-sectional, if you like. And it's one of the things that makes it interesting so that you don't have somebody who's always bleating on about one thing. Uh, people will bleat on about more than one thing. And that makes it interesting. So I think that they are genuinely trying to, to see the world and to develop policies that are inclusive and, you know, couldn't be more important now and couldn't be more important in London. So it's very easy to just put one hat on and it's very easy to, I mean, of course, you've got a very diverse leadership in the GLA anyway. So... Uh, it makes it 
probably easier for them to come to it with a diversity hat mm -hmm. anyway. But that's interesting. And I think it's just a positive way of going about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess if that panel wasn't itself diverse, then there'd be a real problem. But as you say, the GLA itself has, has a wide variety of, of people of different backgrounds on there. So on Islamophobia um, Awareness Month, um, is that something you get involved in? Well, um, Islamophobia Awareness Month per se, not, not particularly with regard to the, the organisation, but... Um, but it is a very important topic at the moment because, you know, I think hate crime has gone up however many percent, a lot. I can't remember the figures off the top of my head. And the ones where they're really, uh, we're really seeing um, an uplift is in religious hate crime, religious-based hate crime. And a new um, report which came out last week from the Wolf Institute, which actually I quoted in my Ham and High op-ed, um, that was about how faith is like the final frontier. And I really believe that. I think that if you go to work these days in a sort of relatively forward-looking organization, you can bring your gender issues with you. You can bring your sexual orientation issues. You can bring your racial issues. You can bring your, your age issues, even though ageism isn't a hate crime. You can bring all sorts of characteristics about you to work and expect that those will be taken seriously. But I don't think on the whole, people bring their faith to work. And I think that uh, on the whole, it's not something that, um, people talk about easily and confidently at work and they tend to leave it at the doorstep. Now, there will obviously be exceptions to that, but I think, and this report confirmed that, it's it's sort of like the final frontier. It's the one we haven't really addressed yet. And I think it's because, partly because, a lot of people think that people who are of faith, whatever that means, are a bit weird. And I think people are a bit wary, a bit wary. What does that mean? And does it mean that you're a radical? And does that, that mean you're extreme? Does that mean that you are very conservative in your views? On the other hand, other people think it makes you fantastic. You know, it means that you're at the forefront of social action and social justice and caring for the lonely and caring for the, for the homeless. And so there's this sort of massive, again, polarization in what people think about the faith groups, for lack of a better word, and an awareness to allow people to engage in it. And I tend to, obviously I'm aware that some people use the title of faith to get away with atrocities, clearly. But the majority, I believe, the vast majority, and in this country, I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of people in the faith groups use it for the common good. And so they are leading the way on things like loneliness. Look at loneliness. Loneliness is just a perfect example. Who knows more about loneliness in this country during the pandemic than the faith groups? Who is dealing with it more on a day-to-day -day basis? Who is out there making sure people are phoned and that cakes are delivered and that old people are, you know, social services are doing, I'm sure, I'm sure the local authorities are doing a fantastic job and they are fully stretched and I'm sure, you know, working around the clock, no question. But in terms of who's got contact with a lot of these isolated people, 
the faith groups will have. Do you think part of the um, the complication comes with the role of debate in it? Because, um, you know, obviously a, a discussion about religion between two peoples of different, pe people of different faiths or um, between somebody who's atheist and religion, possibly that conversation is going to be too much to be had at the office, as it were. So there's a, certainly a role for, for open debate and discussion, which doesn't necessarily neatly fit into to, to, well, to being at work. Well, you raise lots of issues there, actually, because is religion there to be debated? I'm not sure I accept the terminology, right? Um, because, you know, there was a famous case that, I can't remember which conference where somebody said Holocaust, yes or no. It's like, this is not for debate, right? This is not for debate. This is what is. But um, one of the other things that I set up, I co-founded a charity called Nisa Nashim, which means women in Arabic and Hebrew. And we deliberately, uh, Julie Siddiqui and I, we set it up because we were both involved in issues of women in our own communities and very involved in interfaith. And we realized that, it didn't take much to realize that the really difficult, one of the really difficult interfaith issues is Jewish Muslim. And a really difficult challenge for both of those communities is their women and allowing their women to have a voice and allowing the women to come through and to hearing the women and so on. So we set up Nisan Hashim and we talk a lot about these difficult conversations, you know, the obvious difficult conversation being Israel-Palestine and when do you get into that conversation? And if you get into that conversation too quickly, the conversation goes like this. You know, hello, how are you? Lovely to meet you guys. Well, what about Israel-Palestine? Oh, well, let's have some tea. And, you know, it's just you're sunk before you start. So you have to, we believe, have some relationships developed. Um, and there's so many other things you can discuss before you get into Israel-Palestine. You know, there's things like shared scriptures. I had no idea before I got involved in this stuff, how integral the uh, Old Testament is to Islam. Right, what did I know? Um, things like modesty and the place of modesty, male, but particularly female modesty in both religions, the dependence on women and motherhood and families in both traditions, uh, festivals, how they fit into both. You know, there's things that make these two both immigrant communities and dealing with all of those issues. So huge similarities in terms of these two communities, but you, you wouldn't know about any of that until you start sitting down and talking about things. And so we have events. I mean, for example, we had an event that was a joint event that was run by the UK Holocaust Memorial Foundation, the UK HMF, uh, who are building the memorial. Um, and they were doing a project about Srebrenica, the, the uh, genocide at Srebrenica. And it's we the did anniversary this year, isn't it? It's the 20th, it was 25th anniversary, yeah. yeah. And we did, and of course, Holocaust Memorial Day, another organization, we commemorate that one as well. So we did an event where we sat down, it was on Zoom, um, with 
women and we painted stones which are going into the foundations for the memorial around Srebrenica. We talked about Srebrenica, we talked about the Holocaust, we talked about some of the themes that unite them because actually they're very, very different, but there are themes around hatred and intolerance and so on. And we learned together about what happens when you know, hatred gets out of hand, identity politics goes mad. And so I can't remember where we started this question, but it was about um, people debating these at work, right? So you asked about it at yeah. work. And interestingly, we believe that we should be setting up groups at work because at the office, you don't have these difficult conversations. We don't even have these deep conversations, never mind difficult conversations. So you might say, well, I've got to get home early today because it's Shabbat and I've got to cook the dinner or uh, it's Ramadan today, so I'm fasting. But you wouldn't necessarily sit down and talk about, well, that's so interesting because, well, we fast, you know, at certain times of the year in Judaism. And, you know, that's mm. before you start yeah. including other faith groups. But just take those two. We fast and what does fasting mean to you? And what does your family fit into that? And what are the constraints? And how does that make it difficult to come to work? And how does that make it difficult to do your job today? And if you're fasting all day, and I've got to take extra time off to take holiday, and I've got to take it out of my out of my holiday allocation, and I've got to leave early on a Friday in the winter, but I don't have to in the summer. You know, I could go on forever on this. And so there are issues that you can discuss at work. And if you understood each other at work better, you would understand each other better in the same way as you would if you're talking about families or you're talking about anything. So I think there is a huge place at work to set this up and we would be setting up groups at work uh, if we just had a bit more resource. Well, Laura, normally on this podcast, I ask people how they switch off, what they actually enjoy doing between all these jobs. But I honestly don't believe you have any spare time. <laughs> probably won't even ask that. Although I have um, seen a video of you singing with your with your family um, as a mitzvah day thing. Is that is that a regular thing? Do you have musical interludes? Well, my husband, my husband's a TV producer. Uh, he produces comedy, and uh, his hobby is singing. And uh, he has a. a a group called Jonah and the Whalers, and they've sung together since <laughs> for 40 years. And, you know, weddings and permits was a speciality. <laughs> and so for Mitzvah Day, ever since the beginning, in fact, what gave me the idea for Mitzvah Day, we were living in Los Angeles. And we, uh, we, were, we, were, we were members of a synagogue there, Temple Israel of Hollywood, and they had a mitzvah day. And we were allocated the job of going to this old people's home in downtown L.A., which was a Korean old people's home. And we got there with you know, loads of small children and tambourines and guitars and thought, well, what on earth do you sing to these people? We don't know anything Korean. And we tried all of the sort of American oldies and we tried everything we could think of. And of course, what they actually knew was the Beatles. <laughs> and so we ended up seeing the Beatles. And what was fascinating to me was not only seeing these um, 
very elderly, frail people tapping along to the Beatles and realizing we were getting to them, but seeing the children getting it. And that for me was the profound moment. You know, there are moments where you say, hmm. And I thought the kids get this, you know, they can see it too. And that was what gave me the idea when we came back to England for setting up Mitzvah Day. And ever, every single year, we go to an old people's home as a family. I drag my kids in still. <laughs> and uh, they weren't necessarily, I mean, if I, my son this year, you saw, was very obligingly agreed to be on the video. But it was very uh, good. Yeah. But they, they do, they sing beautifully. And we go along and we sing with the, the residents and the staff. and. An old people's home, a care home on a Sunday afternoon in November can be pretty miserable. You know, the, the, the activity officer or manager isn't there. Uh, the family's there. You know, it can be quite a sort of miserable atmosphere. And they're always looking for entertainment. And, you know, you have just an hour and everybody joins it and they dance and they sing. It's amazing. So we always do it. And this year we couldn't do it. So we did a, a video and a lot of people did it. The JW3 uh, put together lots of videos. In fact, lots of care homes were having videos sent to them of people who couldn't visit this year. And uh, Belsay Square, actually, I'm just thinking about ones locally. Belsay Square, I don't know if you saw it. They mm -hmm. did a, about an hour and a quarter video of people doing poems and children playing their, their violins and uh, mm -hmm a couple on a keyboard singing I mean it was very very lovely and because the, the people in care homes at the moment are very isolated you know it's one of the real tragedies of COVID this one and so we thought well what can we do and we either sent in videos and we also did lots of projects with people sending in cards and I'm told that the cards really lots of residents were receiving these cards we've got there's a, a an organization called cards for humanity and they were finding out the names of the people so that they got personalized cards mm -hmm. and even if they weren't sent personalized we were hearing these stories of residents receiving the cards and putting them up in their rooms and you know just being thrilled that somebody was thinking of them where they feel so isolated and alone so uh it's a sort of a bit of a family hobby though i'm I'm not the most enthusiastic on the singing front. I just sort of do what I have to. Um, you're underplaying it. You were very good. Although you're, you're acting as camera operator as well on the video. <laughs> not an easy thing to do. Listen, uh, Laura Marks, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and um, all the best for the coming year. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Laura for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe and we'll be back on Christmas Day with a special episode.